Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Everybody, welcome back. Next up, we've got a nice chat here with Tatjana, who is the CEO of Fuzzy Bot, longtime industry veteran, seen the industry from a lot of different angles. So, diving right into it, let's start with tell everybody how you originally got into the industry and then walk us through what you've been doing up to a Fuzzy Bot. I think I started in a pretty stereotypical way, which is I was a really big gamer growing up. Um, and then I studied computer science in high school and, and took uh, programming in college. And that landed me my uh, first industry experience as an intern at Microsoft Game Studios. I was a technical producer there for four years. And then I moved over. I had this itch to go and study abroad and kind of take advantage or I guess work abroad, not study abroad take advantage of the fact that the gaming industry is worldwide. Uh, so I landed a gig working in uh, Sweden um, on the Need for Speed franchise. And that led me to a job within the DICE Los Angeles studio on the Battlefield franchise. And then uh, within that studio, I spent about three years working within incubation teams and new IP ideation teams. And that experience really kind of uh, fired me up with the prospect of um, doing like doing things from the ground up versus working on these mega blockbuster franchises. And so um, in 2020, ended up splitting with the incubation team um, that was working um, within Dice LA. And so we started our own studio, Fuzzy Bot Games. And um, from the get-go, kind of our, our idea was to take all of our experience, but then really try to flex our creative muscles um, as a new team, also much smaller, uh, much less funding than EA. Um, so our focus is on creating games that aren't as uh, M for mature as like, let's say Battlefield is, but appeal to a wider demographic. We have a bunch of folks that are parents now, uh, but also still really leaning in on our experience of building multiplayer action games. So how many, I mean, obviously that's going from a gigantic team and organization to the indie world. So how big is FuzzyBot? Um, so we started off five people. Um, so about two years ago, we were like five people. Um, and then for a while we were around 10. Now we're in production. And so we're 20 
full-time people, but we work with um, a pretty great cohort uh, of part-time folks all around the world. And so overall, I would say we have close to 35 people working on the project within any given time. So at what point, I mean, we see this cycle take place. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in the industry go through the very same thing. It's like you're either at a small studio and then you go AAA and then you're like, oh, wait, I want more freedom and I'm going to go back to indie. And then it's like, oh, my God, I want a real paycheck. Mm -hmm. So I need to go back to AAA. What were some of the things that I don't want to say you had grown tired of, mm -hmm. but what were some of the things that, you know, led you on that idea, on that little journey of, OK, let's start something a little more smaller, a little more intimate, where we're all in a little more control? Um, so I would say it was two things. One, it was like a burning desire to do so. Um, so we, like I said, we were in this, we kind of had some of that experience within EA, uh, trying to both, uh, uh, you know, ideate within Battlefield ideation pods, but also trying to get something up from scratch and that creativity um, uh, that like starting with a small uh, like brain trust of folks that was really just motivating to all of us because my co-founder has worked on you know Assassin's Creed was a, a giant project and Battlefield and Medal of Honor we have a lot of folks that worked on really great franchises and kind of have enough you know vanity credits so to say but um, uh, the idea of building something from scratch really uh, came from that experience of, of trying to do that within a big company. But also what was really important is we found each other. We had a really great creative cohort where everybody was complementing each other um, and amplifying each other's ideas versus having kind of a creative, like too much creative tension. Um, and then opportunity, it was, I would say about three years ago was kind of the golden time for new studios starting up because there was funding availability. So during the pandemic, uh, games as an industry grew a lot uh, when people didn't have a lot to do. Uh, so they were gaming and you know, the engagement was going up, the spend was going up. So there was a lot of different uh, parties from investors to publishers, all kinds of folks that were interested in, in investing in games. Uh, so we found it particularly during that time easier than any other time and wanted to take advantage of that opportunity because who knows when that will happen again. I mean, even right now things are consolidating. So we were happy to, to get started when we did. So it was both like the right team, the right kind of motivations like in our career, but also the, the ability to get funding because none of us were in a place in our lives where we could have bootstrapped for let's say a year. So give everybody a high level understanding of the difference in scope here between what you're working on on the Battlefield franchise and then what you're doing with Project Saturn. How big of a difference in game scope, mm -hmm. budget, timeline are you seeing there? Yeah, I guess for, for context, probably the smallest title I worked on uh, was probably like uh, Forza Motorsport three or four back when that was like uh, you know without before Horizon came out and uh, if I was to guess we would have had probably forty to sixty million development budget and then uh, you know double maybe not maybe full double but with marketing probably just under a hundred 
Um, and that was uh, roughly 65 people in the studio at the time. And then we had maybe 40 to 60 contractors. Um, and Battlefield is huge. Um, it starts off usually with a team of around 90 people. And then towards the end, it, it could be up to 600 people. I think it might have been even 900 people on the last one that come together from every single location around the globe. Uh, so even me as uh, uh, one of the more kind of experienced uh, senior producers, I had a team of maybe 50 to 70 people, but that was just like a pod within the bigger machine. Um, it's it's actually, a, I would say, really like science meets art to coordinate everyone to make that happen. Um, things like incredible discipline communication becomes really, really important and small mistakes and that can, can have pretty big impact on a lot of people. Um, you do end up as a game developer managing processes, managing communication and managing the machine much more than um, like the cre creative, bringing cool ideas together. Um, and then um, like here, I it's small enough to where I comprehend almost everything that goes in the game, every design, every feature request, every bug. Um, I'm the only producer person as well as running this the studio and it's and it's manageable. And in that way, there's also space for creativity for everyone uh, because there's less of this overhead of managing the, the, the giant machine of, of game production. All right, so that brings up something really pertinent right there. How do you go about managing the production with managing the the business side, running the studio? And we'll get into the whole VC funding thing. But I mean, mm -hmm. how how do you go about doing that on a daily basis? How do you separate those? Um, I would say that my experience at EA was invaluable for this because the way that EA uh, trains particularly the production staff, uh, producers and development directors. And I've had the experience of being on both ends, development directors being more uh, project management focused and producers being more product management focused is that they really focus you on running a business. Uh, so you're in charge of budgets, you're in charge of PNL, you work with legal, you work with all these entities for your specific project so transitioning out of EA, for sure, there wasn't you know, a department for everything, but I generally knew everything that had to go into the business. Um, even if I didn't directly touch it, I, I, I've been aware, I've been trained on it, I've had an, uh, an idea. Um, and then also uh, part of it was the folks that invested us early on also provided that operational support of going through, here's the critical things that you need to set up. Luckily for me, uh, when we were setting up the studio and we had to get accounting and, and legal support and business insurance and things like that, workers comp, um, we were five people. So the production needs for that group of people ideating very early on was very minimal. So I was able to focus 90% on setting up the company and knowing that at some point the production would get much more intense. I specifically picked things that could run themselves. So for example, our um, accounting support is um, actually uh, half people support, half a tool that this startup built. Um, and I would, I would make a side note that one of the great things about starting a company now is that there's so many tools 
for doing payroll, for doing taxes, for, for doing a lot of business things that other startups have focused on to optimize. So I, like logistically, there's a lot more tools that you could use that make running a business much easier, particularly a tech business, I would say. Um, so so I, I invested a lot of time early on in the company when I had the time to make sure all the things I picked could run themselves. And so nowadays when 80% of my time is more on the game production, um, a lot of those things are just on rails. And, and sometimes things flare up. I would say the heart been recruiting because we don't have budget to have um, recruiters or or to work with firms so it all kind of usually falls on me that gets really really crazy whenever we put out some recs that are popular uh, but otherwise it like when the business comes up usually the production's a bit slower and vice versa and it also helps that our team is small and mostly super experienced people so there's a lot of work that they take on themselves and they don't wait for me uh, in terms of running their departments and organizing things so what are some of those tools? I know we, you have like gusto for payroll, but mm -hmm. what are some of the other tools that you use to make things run easier? Yeah, gusto is a big one. That's the one that we use. Um, so that does like benefits and payroll and, you know, holiday tracking expenses, things like that. Um, we, we currently use Brex, but there's also ramp and a bunch of other corporate cards, which aren't really credit cards, but they enable people like for you to assign cards to people so that they can make purchases and upload expenses. Um, there's a guideline, which is great if you want to set up 401k plans for employees and other benefits type things. Um, usually it used to be very complicated, but it enabled way for small companies to be able to manage it. We use Zenny for our accounting. Uh, so what I love about them is that they have a live dashboard that tracks all the money going in and out of your company in real time. And then they do end of month, like reconcilia reconciliation and fixes. So you don't need to like wait too long to get a state of, uh, of your, of your stuff. Um, I'm sure there's others, but I would say like Gusto's a big one. Zenny's a big one in terms of accounting. Um, and obviously, like one of the big things since I started in the industry is that we have Unreal and Unity. Like Engine used to be a pretty big hurdle, but but now that's a tool that has great support and great education. There's also tools that you can use for or new companies that write backend software like Wise for audio, et cetera. So what what are y'all using? Are you on Unreal or Unity? Yeah, we're on Unreal. It's I'm wondering if we're not going to start seeing that cycle again, where because of all this unity drama, developers start going back and saying, you know what, I'm just going to do this ourselves again. I mean, we just saw party animals get launched. That was completely mm -hmm. in-house studio. Do you think that we're going to start seeing the rise of that again? Or do you think the industry is going to stay more on one, two or two or three established engines you know i am in no way gonna say what i think i predict there it always usually makes sense that if your game has very specific engine needs then then you should you know pick based on that like if it makes sense to do a proprietary engine it could like racing games for example yes. um forza motorsport has a proprietary engine that is the thing that really makes sense to optimize for car games which have very specific requirements in terms of travel speed and loading zones that is very different from other games which don't traverse the environment um, as quickly 
Um, same thing for, um, you know, if, if a game is hyper physics based, but low fidelity, um, there's, there's better engines than I would say Unreal. Um, Frostbite has been designed for Battlefield in mind in terms of supporting that many units. Again, uh, I don't think Unreal would do super great support running Battlefield. Um, so it, there's still cases where custom engines absolutely make sense, but it is ex like it is expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and so for like for a lot of action games, using Unreal and Unity makes total sense and it's probably worth the price. Um, it's not crazy egregious for the amount of support and, and development that you get. And, and with the projects that come through here, the ones that I generally see that are doing proprietary engines that I don't just like roll my eyes and go, mm -hmm. oh my God, now what are racing mm -hmm. games because mm -hmm. they are mm -hmm. so outside the boundary. You don't really think about it as much from a gamer mm -hmm. perspective, but it, from a technical standpoint, mm -hmm. it's a significant you know, difference. Mm -hmm. So as you all started the company, talk about how you went through that initial creative process to come up with the game design, decide what you want to do, establish that, I don't want to say timeline, but, you know, get that plan laid out for that first game. Yeah, one of our really big learnings having come out of EA was that having a concept that's super crystal clear early on is crucial. Um, like, that's where a lot of things can get muddy, um, is if you have, let's say, some gameplay design ideas, but it doesn't really fully develop into a, a concept you can easily explain. So this the concept we ended up going with which is uh basically making a mission-based more accessible roguelite with some elements of uh town building that are seen in let's say live sims um and uh, and defense games um kind of just uh, was like third concept second or third concept that we developed and it just when our engineer and designer were riffing about it and they came to this like hades meets animal crossing it felt so succinct and it felt like a concept that could write itself. Um, and it was really, really motivating for the team. So as the second or third concept we tested, this one kind of seemed to unlock the most creativity and problem solving within the team. And that's what we were looking for. So we went with that one. It was it was kind of easy to explain since development developed it outside of like X meet Y, because that's always feels a little bit cheap. Um, but um, but yeah, it, it was the, we tried it. It seemed to really unlock a lot of flow and great ideas in the team. And that was kind of the first, yes, let's roll with this. Um, and then um, and then we started prototyping. So we initially prototyped just like different combat mechanics that we were interested in. Um, so the first, I think three to six months, we were just really getting comfortable with the idea of doing like procedural levels and this like one more go try new pickups and things like that through this roguelike mechanic and just trying to really find uh, a cool um, combat feel that that was what we spent most of the initial process on before we touched any of the of the you know you spawn in a town you you have some permanent progression etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, um, and the thing that we settled on is a lot of the combat revolves around a grappling hook um, that you can upgrade and use in different ways and and create this kind of fun with physics moments. So uh, and that concept, like this combat uh, style, 
just really appealed to things that the team was good at, which is fun with physics, action combat, co-op gameplay, et cetera, uh, but then introduced enough freshness in its art style and different combinations of, of things that you can do when you go back to your hub world that, that really in, inspired the team. Because game dev is hard, so you want to feel, and we left like really stable jobs <clears throat> and opportunities to do this. So uh, you, you want to work on something that's like exciting and, and fuels you every single week. So this, this concept had both like inspiring the team, um, but also utilizing the key strengths that we have. So from the business perspective, and obviously because you're going to have to go and you're going to mm -hmm. have to sell VCs on this vision as well, where did you draw the balance between what gets the team excited and engaged and <clears throat> what is a game that's actually going to make money? Uh, so I would say that we mostly focused on things that felt right to us, to be honest. Um, we didn't try to, outside of like, you know, painting a really cool opportunity because we did set out to make a game that would be widely appealing. We weren't looking necessarily to make the most niche game or one that just felt cool to us. We were, you know, we, we did build a studio because we want to have a really successful studio versus just one particular game. We want to build a place where we can retire out of. And I mean that in like a very positive way um, as in something that is creatively fulfilling and enables uh, creative growth and career growth, and and also that you know uh, enables us to to support uh, like our families, et cetera. So, um, so this idea of having business success made us uh, you know pick a concept that we were excited about, but also that could be commercially viable. Um, and then uh, we uh, we pitched it, and we kind of eliminated people who didn't really believe. Um, and we ended up getting people who saw it for even bigger opportunity than we did. And I think that's the perfect partner for us as a studio, which is somebody that pluses us up versus just us trying to like sell them or, or maybe paint a different picture than what we believe in. Come on, Tatiana, you know, we don't really get to retire in this industry. That's, that's a myth that they keep telling <laughs> us that we're going to get to do. That's um, the dream though. <laughs> that's just, yes, it is. That is the dream, but, um, all right, so let's talk about the VC side. So having worked in the industry, you had a wonderful track record. You built together mm -hmm. a team that also had a lot of AAA experience on there. What was that path that you all took on the way to, you know, pitching the game, getting the funding, that sort of stuff? Um, so we started the studio with a loan. Um, and then this was like early 2021 we put uh we announced that we had gone live so just so that there was no mystery about what the hell did these people like <laughs> left where are they <laughs> like, are they alive <laughs> uh so we just announced it mostly like you know targeting our industry friends and family and um when we announced it we did get a a, a couple of pings uh about both uh you know publishing but also investment so uh, one of the first things we got from Eric at Sisu Game Adventures, he worked with my co-founder, Max, had a lot of respect for him from that experience, was very curious about what is this new thing that he's uh, endeavoring. Uh, on my end, I had known uh, Ali from Makers Fund, um, and I think I had reached out, and then he reached out also like curious to both just support 
uh, being uh, uh, new into the VC space um, on how to tailor a pitch and, and encouraging. So uh, between those people and a few other folks that, that were involved in, in supporting uh, new game studios, we essentially compared, you know, publishing versus VC and also uh, got help in putting together a deck, which for VC funding usually involves a lot less information that you're used to preparing for a publisher or internal like EA pitching. Um, and so really simplifying, honing our message and, and really focusing on the strength of the team and the potential of the concept. So uh, we, we ended up pitching to both, you know, Eric and, and Ali's teams. We then got introduced to a couple more folks uh, through our network. And I also just did cold reach outs. Like some of the, the best pitches we had was for me just sending a deck through like an email web form and people replied. So, um, and I watched a bunch of YouTube videos where I'm like, oh, like uh, this seems like a cool gaming fund. Let me get a chance to understand what they're about. So I would find videos online of them presenting at different conferences to get an idea of like, what is their thesis? What are they looking for? Um, and then I would tailor like an email or something like that going, hey, I watched this. Um, we're doing something similar. I think it would be interesting for you to check out our, our thing. And um, a lot of people will sometimes blast like 50 people. I ended up just focusing on maybe 20 um, that, that seemed to uh, specifically be okay with, with our particular content. Um, and out of those, we, we had, uh, again, 2021, different time than it is now. Um, we, we got decent interest maybe with, with 10 folks that ended up with um, uh, us getting, you know, uh, a couple of term sheets uh, to compare and, and pick the right partner. So one thing that a lot of folks probably don't realize is when you're going out to VC funds, you're not just really going, it's not like you get one and then you're done. Mm -hmm. there's multiple layers, there's multiple aspects of it. And then one firm will come in and then bring in somebody else. How did you go about, you know, tackling the whole process basically, you know, mm -hmm. uh, was it mainly, like you said, friends, word of mouth, or I mean, how did you I'm trying to get around to is it's an incredibly complex process. How did you do it without going crazy? Uh, I, again, I would have to say 2021, different time. I didn't find it too complicated. I reached out mostly with what people said during that time is if you find a person who can give you, who's a lead or the person who will set the terms of the deal and put most of the money in, then the rest of the folks will come in either through their network or other folks that you've pitched to. So the main thing was like, don't worry about, you know, filling, like getting the whole round, just worry on, on like the, the leading partner. Um, and so we did, and like, it kind of worked out exactly as people said, like we pitched a bunch of folks. Um, there was like Ed Freeze who runs one up fund. Um, he, he almost never leads, I, I, especially now. I don't think he leads, he only follows. Um, and so we pitched to him. So he said, you know, similar, it's like, if you have a lead, this is like my check size, let me know. Um, and so when we, you know, agreed on the lead at that point, the person, the fund that introduced us to this lead, uh, Sisu and Bitcraft, they work a lot together on deals. So they filled most of the round and made some room for Ed and it was done. It was very simple, I would have to say. Um, now things are much more complicated. Now you're kind of like really selling each individual uh, fund or investor that is coming in, whether they're a lead or not. Uh, on there's a, There's a lot more hesitation, I would say. 
um, especially before you like we're we're still fundraise or uh, we're wrapping that up, but we're still our game is not out. It's still such a big stretch to see if we're going to be successful as a studio. There isn't metrics, so there's a lot of risk, and money's really expensive um, these days. So um, so it takes like now it's a lot more. It takes a lot more time. Um, you really feel like every single check that's going to come in, you're, you're doing like the full pitch. So so these days, I wouldn't say it's more complicated. It's just a lot more effort and it takes a lot more time. And for the folks that don't know, explain the difference between, you know, somebody leading and then mm -hmm. somebody like Ed's firm coming in and following. Um, yeah, so the, the lead uh, fund usually is the one that will set the terms of the deal, like how much of the company that is going to be sold within this round, what's the total amount that that's going to happen. So they, um, you know, any other secondary tertiary terms. So they they take on the the negotiating hurdle and the legal hurdle of shepherding the process from the investor side. And then the follow folks will put additional money in, but we'll just piggyback on on what the the, the leading investor sets out for the terms and how they shepherd the deal. Um, and usually the the leading investor puts in um, a large chunk of the overall round because usually for all of their effort, um, they're looking for the most amount of the company in return. So you're much smarter than me, Tatjana. I started my first company right as the recession went into the crapper in, 20, in 2008. So, you know, coming out of the, I mean, and it really was a different time because mm -hmm. our industry made so much money during the pandemic that there weren't a whole lot of people who weren't necessarily historical investors in games, but were looking around going, oh my God, all of my other investments lost money and everybody's playing Animal Crossing. So, it was a very, very good time to do this. All right. So we've got one question come in and it's going to lead into some of the other ones I've got for you anyway. So Neoware over on YouTube says starting an indie studio is hard. Can you tell which one of the mistakes that you made and which mistakes you often see in other studios? So I'm going to do a little bit of a cliffhanger. This is amateur hour for me, but I realized that whatever I plugged my, my computer in hasn't been charging it. So I'm just going to take a minute to quickly change the plug. Um, and I will let you fill it, fill in for the one awkward minute of silence. <laughs> yes, because that's what I am. I am here to do is to fill in. Don't pay any attention to the you know man behind the curtain type thing. But seriously, um, for those of you out there watching, if you've got any questions on how to start an indie studio, especially taking that transition from AAA down, well not down to indie, over to indie, mm -hmm. and you know raising money, pop them in chat. We'll go through them, touch on this wonderfully going. Now that you're plugged in and you have power, we're, don't worry. Last conference, I was halfway through one of these fireside chats before Dan popped in and went, Jay, you never hit the live button. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, so, yeah, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Um, talk through the mistakes that mm -hmm. you felt that you all made in that early stages of starting up the indie studio and then what you see other studios doing that, you know, you can save somebody some heartache on. looking for a publisher for your game well we have something special just for you it's the most comprehensive listing of pc console 
and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. And you can get it for free. Check it out. that um, most of, I wouldn't say it's mistakes, but it's just something to watch out for is um, the, is around hiring, like bringing the right people into the studio. Um, the, the thing that I would say both we did, but also that I often see folks doing is when you start your own studio, you're very idealistic around <laughs> how you want to show up in the world. And um, and it's really, really important to realize what the values are that are truly the ones that are uncompromisable versus the aspirational ones, the ones that you still need to grow into. Because um, I do think that, especially during the pandemic, um, a lot of us uh, came out wanting to create, like, number one, ethical places that don't burn out people. Uh, because we had all, you know, a bunch of us have come out of like crazy crunches and things like that. And that's all important, but I think it needs to be combined with the realities of running a small studio with limited funds um, and that will, you know, where the money will run out at some point. But also being very, very clear around, um, we try to enable a lot of creative ownership and we look for people that can take it. But for example, our creative director holds the vision and he's going to be the ultimate arbiter um, in like, and he does a fantastic job of enabling people and, and really, you know, taking the best ideas, but there it's uh, the, the overall creative vision isn't a demographic demo, democratic process in our studio. And part of that is because we need to really move with speed. And anytime you're like reaching consensus, you need to be willing to spend extra time on that. Um, and it can take, up to a decade for a team that is consensus driven to become super, super efficient. And there's a lot of benefits to it, but you need to make the trade-off. Um, so um, I would say that early on, we weren't as clear in terms of like, and especially bringing super experienced AAA folks in terms of both how much responsibility they're gonna have, where they might need to uh, sacrifice some of that AAA quality that you get with having 200 person teams uh, or 500 person teams where you can meticulously texture every single rock, for example, versus, hey, you are the entire level team or you are the entire character team. Um, and so we did have folks that got like frustrated in both the speed or, or how quickly you were making decisions or that, um, you know, hey, build a whole biome. Okay, I need a team of 16. Oh, that's not gonna happen. <laughs> so, so just, I would say in hiring and setting the expectations, um, uh, that's that's like um, that's the number one kind of learning for us. Um, we've gotten much better at being very very clear, not being shy about it, um, even if you know, um, let's say like the speed and quality. Like we're we're pretty much like we want to get as high quality as we can, and we're not looking to burn you out. But you need to be willing to really be smart around how things are built and how quickly we need to move. That's just like one example. Um, 
And that's where I see a lot of issues is, is people bringing in folks uh, based on very aspirational ideas who they want to be versus the reality of what the studio is like. And then there's frustration on both sides. Yeah, I couldn't help but laugh there because I even I had the very same thing when I started the company. It's like the idealistic is like, this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to help. And that's all well and good and fine until it's like we need to make payroll. Um, so we have to try to figure something out here in the middle. Hiring is it's one of the hardest things. And I've seen it, you know, with my team. I've seen it with, you know, teams around the world. It's not just can you get somebody, but it's like, you've got this little bitty window to figure out, is this person going to be a long-term fit for, you know, mm -hmm. our project, our studio, our company, our, you know, that sort of stuff. How did you approach hiring one in the sense of when did you, how do you know it's time to bring someone on? Mm -hmm. And then two, how, how do you go about vetting them to make sure that that investment is going to be worth it in the long run and they're, they're going to be with you. Um, so it, there was a couple of roles that, uh, like, for example, our team had no artists on it. Like it was me on the production side. It was Max on the design creative direction side. It was Kevin and Jake on engineering. And it was Andy who was doing like technical design and animation. So we had no artists. So we knew we needed an art director. And one of the learnings from our previous experience within uh, a big AAA part where the philosophy was like, we'll make everything work in gray box and then we'll add the art. We saw like that was a pretty big failure um, as in like the art informs a lot of how things show up in gameplay and it needs to come in earlier. So one of the learnings was like, we're going to get an art director uh, like right away uh, and make sure we have that developing alongside gameplay. Uh, but then, every, like a lot of the other hires, was like when things got painful. Honestly, it's like when our UX was really janky, and the capacity of our existing design team was failing to meet those needs. We're like, yeah, we need to get a UX designer, um, or uh, our engineers are really like, like we don't, we really need another engineer. Uh, sometimes there was a, a few times it was an opportunity, like uh, oh, we created this role, but. Uh, like, I think we were looking for a generalist uh, 3D artist, and then we got a fantastic tech artist out of that and uh, a bunch of other folks. So, um, but most of the time it's when the need is all like painfully felt. Um, and in terms of vetting folks, um, again, one of the things that was frustrating to us within uh, a big publisher was that the hiring process seemed so clunky. Like it took forever. It took like months for people to get in. The panels were so big. Um, there was like 20 people talking for 30 minutes. Um, uh, the feedback seemed awkward. So we simplified it. Um, initially, when we had 10 people, we had almost everyone interviewed the person and we just made it very clear, like these people aren't going to uh, talk to you about your craft. They're just going to get a feel for, for working together. Uh, these people will kind of get a sense of your craft. So. Um, and the one thing that's been really useful is because we're not within a big publisher, we can talk about our game. Uh, so we were very transparent about this is what the game looks like. This is our aspiration, just to make sure that the people knew exactly <laughs> what they would be building. And the game is what got people excited, which has been good. It's like they're like, believe in the concept, love the aesthetic, or 
you know, something else. Um, and, uh, and then we're like, okay, you're going to be one of you. This is the scope. Um, this is the team. Like, is this something you're up for? And this is how we work. So the folks that came, that have come in, they, uh, you know, love the people that they talk to. They love the game concept and they feel prepared to take on the role. And usually the role for most people has been a bit of a stretch role because most of us have been used to working in bigger teams with more support. So also people that are looking for a particular challenge in their career. Um, and that for the most part has been really successful. I, I had not thought about that aspect of it, but you're dead on being able to actually talk about what the mm -hmm. game is. Cause a lot of times if you're interviewing with one of these big AAA mm -hmm. studios, they can't tell you what you're mm -hmm. actually going to be working on, mm -hmm. but being able to get and see who's got a passion, who's excited about this type of game mm -hmm. is yes, that's absolutely. How was the transition going from, you know, not just you, but, but the rest of the team going from these, much bigger groups where you had a very specific focused role to you know being on the indie side of it where you have to take care of things that you're not normally having to do how was that transition and were there any road bumps or lessons learned out of that one um so i love it that's a personal thing um i like getting my hands into a lot of things i've been kind of i enjoy being what is it called like uh, like a jack of all trades, master of none. I, I actually embrace that. Um, so um, for me, it felt very natural as to what I wanted to do. And again, having had experience of building like a kind of this new IP incubation team exposed me to a lot of like finding contractors, like signing contracts, being illegal, like doing budgets, like pitching. Like so before I left to do the startup, I got a lot of this experience, which was fantastic. And a lot of the other stuff is pretty standardized where we got support from legal and, and other friends and could ping them. So oh, I would say that's the one thing I haven't mentioned. But the great thing about having been in the industry for 10 years and the industry, even though it's games is so big as a business, the industry still feels very intimate and small. And somehow everyone ends up, you know, having some version of <laughs> six degrees of Kevin Bacon, where eventually somebody knows someone. So um, I got very comfortable with like pinging people, even if I haven't talked to them in years and, and asking for support. And 80% of the time they answered and provided it. Um, so yeah, just, just asking the network <laughs> has been a huge thing. Um, and I guess the last bit is I would, I'm surprised at how much like grunt work <laughs> I do these days. Uh, Cause you know, uh, people have this idea of like, oh, you're a CEO of a company. I'm like, yeah, I'm not like a fortune 500 company. Yes. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm running a small indie business. Like I spend half a day like shipping stuff <laughs> yes. or like putting up posters on the walls or, you know, like screenshotting receipts or things like that. So there's just like a ton of grunt work and that's one of the things that a lot of startup people will tell you. It's like, don't feel like you're wasting your time. This is just part of the hustle is that there's nobody else to do grunt work. So it's on you. <laughs> but it, it's also, and this is the reason I still make myself do a lot mm -hmm. of the grunt work is because it, you don't get too far detached from what your team is doing mm -hmm. from what is important. I mean, I remember I've had bosses like this and they were like, mm -hmm. well, we need to be doing X. And we're like, we are doing X and it's getting absolutely mm -hmm. shit results. So mm -hmm. we need to be, but 
if they don't see it, if they're not there as well. Mm. And so it's one of the things that, yes, we do have to do. We're not flying around in, you know, in a G6, you know, for once we are running small studios as the CEOs, yeah. but it, it's good to have to do that grunt work and to not detach yourself from it because it keeps you much more in focus with what everybody else is going through. I mean, so this is leads into like the obvious question. How do you all tackle crunch and all of that stuff coming out of AAA and having to deal with it for so many years? How have you adapted things as an indie studio to, I'm not even going to say eliminate, but lessen that effect? Mm -hmm. um, so the great thing about like uh, a project that takes you know 20 people and that is completely comprehensible is that you can see it you know like you can see when things are too much people feel it it's not so complex that it feels obfuscated of how much work is actually left um and at least in my experience because of the complexity and the unknowns and the amount of like knock-on effects that happen when you work in a five to nine hundred person studio is that it is really impossible to predict exactly you know when things need to be cut and what the knock-on effects are and, and how much work will will come together when the game is stood up and then you realize half the systems don't gel the way that they were designed to gel um so there's a lot more productivity with just a, a smaller um a smaller scope project in that way that for example uh two year like last december we had an offsite, and one of the big focus areas was everyone was feeling that the game was too big um like we haven't we still had a year and a half to go but we all felt like it was it was too big so we went through an exercise for two days where we you know laid out all the features we really prioritize which were the most essential to the experience and we looked at it in like three different ways like bullseye exercises you know some like charts, flow charts, things like that. And in the end, we we did um, we basically reduced um, about a third of the game. That helped people ease. And now, as we're in production, we're continuing to to scope down. So reducing both like the amount of things that people need to focus on, uh, but also like the overall thing really helps. Um, and then the other part is just making really smart design and tech decisions. So our studio tech director specifically made a conscientious choice to use as much off the shelf products versus building custom things like for backend, et cetera, and work around those constraints um, and kind of pushing the design to work around those constraints because the less engineering has to support proprietary things, the more bandwidth they have to focus on game features. Um, and then we do, like we we switch how we work on the game too so we we go through periods where we focus on like feature development um and then we always have a polish time where we take a step back from adding new things and just play the game as a holistic experience and and get us get a sense of things um and that type of work where you're just knocking out bugs in priority order really really quickly um is uh, is a way to to always have a realistic view of how far you are from from shippable quality so it's a lot of different tools that we've learned. We are still, we still have a year before we come out. So 
I'm sure they're like it's going to get harder to to manage that. Uh, but generally, we believe weekends are good. Uh, they help you decompress and relax. We almost we never require weekend work. Uh, we would rather um, have people put in some extra hours during the week. We have flexible arrangement too, so we really encourage people to work when they feel the most productive. Uh, to like, so we have some folks that will run errands during the day and then they feel really productive in the evening. So that's when they go. So maximizing how people work plus just making smart scoping decisions is how we've been able to do it so far. Uh, but really uh, all of that will be tested when when we get closer to launch. Every Everything's good until it comes down to launch, right? Yeah, you, you have to be incredibly smart. I mean, I would say that the difference between like me as a producer early on versus me now is me as a producer early on was like, like how do we optimize to get the most things complete to check everything um me as a producer now is like the more things you complete the more knock-on effects it's gonna have uh like the more bugs you fix the more new bugs you will have so for me these days it's much less about like optimizing for getting the most work done but getting the right work done and controlling the consequences of that it's interesting that you know there's actually methods of controlling the consequences because many times there's just out of, out of the blue. What are some of the things that you can't do at an indie studio that you were used to and comfortable doing at the AAA level? Piling people on at the end. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean like you know a lot of the solve uh, for getting mass amount of content done or like you can postpone you know certification for consoles where you you pull plugs and things like that and you just need to complete those tcrs is you can pull people from other projects that are just great engineers or lighters or artists and you can give them a very specific task in an engine that they're familiar with and they can get it done if they won't be as efficient you know and like part of the Part of the actually a lot of the crunch that happens at the end of the big games is like waiting for builds and waiting to see if your thing actually made it through and if it was correct because all of a sudden you know the even if you triple build capacity you go from having 200 people check in to 600 people check in and all of a sudden like i think i fixed this lighting there's a review tomorrow but i need to wait four hours or eight hours to see if it made it through and with everybody else's check-ins, if it's still looking correct. So like the, the turnaround time on doing your work and making sure it's done and didn't mess up anything else is just gets really, really hard at the end. So a lot of people complain that it's like a lot of crunches just waiting around <laughs> to see if your thing actually went in because you, you, you're stuck, right? Like you have to get something in because it needs to get approved, but that be like you're waiting for it. Um, so, um, yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've got a question and mm -hmm. we're going to answer the question real quick, but it's going to also lead mm -hmm. into another one. So Cyber Shell says, what percent of your projects are supported by investors versus studio? Well, obviously this is your first game. So everything mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. investor supported, but you are, have you secured a publisher yet? Are you still looking for a publisher? Where did the whole decision between, because a lot of people that get the you know funding, they're like, oh, we'll self-publish. Mm -hmm. Where have you all fallen on, on that scale? Um, so we are getting a distribution partner. 
so we're not doing marketing ourselves. We're not doing like the, uh, you know, a lot of those strategic decisions. Um, so we're both, we're doing both. We're, we've got investor money to develop the game. And then we are also going to be partnering with a publisher to take the game to market. And for us, the big reason of still choosing to go with a publisher is that um, it, publishing functions on a different heartbeat than development. It's not a heartbeat that we're particularly familiar with or feel that we can take on for our first game. Um, it has to do with doing market research into what is the closest genre comp, how do you optimize Steam, which languages should you prioritize because every language is expensive. So if you could only, let's say, afford four to five initially before you can add more, which should those be? Which territories do you go after? Every territory has different channels where the players get their news. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot of it, it's an it's an art of how to to get the message about your game to the right people that I wouldn't say that you learn as like a game dev just creating a game. There is or at least for us, there is a support system, and we appreciate how intricate and important that is to the overall success of the game. Like we build a really cool game that we believe in, but we also need somebody who knows how to get it into the right hands. And um, I think there's a, a lot of viral successes within the indie game industry, but I wouldn't look at the survivor bias, you know, around those, like some of them could be luck, right? Like, so if we take luck off the table, um, then there's a lot of value to having a distribution. And even if you are, you know, you are comfortable on the marketing side, I mean, the marketing side of the industry changes rapidly. You know, mm -hmm. my career has changed more mm -hmm. than a dozen times. But what, you know, if you're only launching a game every three or four years, what worked three or four years ago isn't going to work now. It, mm -hmm. It's a completely different thing. So, yeah, but that, I mean, that's good that, you know, you, you all can say, okay, look, this is not our area of expertise, mm -hmm. nor do we want to deal with this. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's outsource it and, and not outsource. Well, find a yeah, partner, partner with somebody, yeah. partner with somebody who we have confidence in. Um, I, I would say that I always think of running a game studio and getting your game out there is like, that meme that's like it's dangerous to go alone take this like you need buddies <laughs> and you need like the right tool set uh like don't just go blindly into a boss fight <laughs> and when you hit that room that has just a ton of weapons and ammo and mm -hmm. you know medical mm -hmm. supplies and then there's a door mm -hmm. you know you're getting ready to walk into a boss fight so mm -hmm. you, you need to get ready yep what do you feel i mean looking back over the last couple of years what do you feel are you know, is one or some of the key things that if you had to do it over again, you would change this part? Sometimes it's hard to see this from, you know, uh, perspective, like until the game is done. But I immediately feel like um, you really should take advantage of market conditions because they change so quickly. It's like, whatever is viral. So for us, we raised in like spring of 2021. And then we're like, okay, we're good for a year. And then we can do this again. But the market was heating up, we could have pitched and gotten the additional funding right away, when there was a lot of appetite, but we actually held people off because we were like, 
this is but then things started crashing and all of a sudden that was much much harder so i would say funding wise if there is let's say netflix is giving out great deals or you know microsoft is having this whole new program whenever there is like good market conditions to just take advantage of those uh, because that's probably the most unpredictable kind of core to survival thing of an independent game studios is getting uh, is getting funds. Um, so instead of trying to get the optimal scenario, take advantage of what's like, you know, keep your ears to the ground and see and, and see what's what's happening. Um, and I this is more of a joke, but at 35 people, 20 full time, this game is about four times as big as we initially set out to be. We were going to be an eight person studio, you know, working on a much simpler game. And I always laugh with my co-founder. I'm like, what the hell did you get us into? <laughs> like, this game has like three X the budget, three X the people, three X the scope. Like this is not what we signed up for, for our first title. Uh, but he made a good point in that, you know, part of our survival is making a game that people care about. Um, and like having the right scope and the right quality level is important. There, there's for sure tons of examples of, of people who bootstrap with one to two people that can do it, but it is less guaranteed, like having a really well-featured high quality game in the mid case scenario, in the medium scenario is important. But that's that's my one regret. I'm like, why did we do this? <laughs> yeah, this little group thing was started 13 years ago and I only put that word in there so people would think that we were bigger than it was just me. <laughs> and same thing over the last you know couple of years, we've grown and we've grown and I turn around, I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. shit what now it's like mm -hmm. i didn't i didn't mean to run a whole company but apparently we're going to do that now Oops. yeah so how i mean this is it is very important this is the last question and, I, and i'll let you go after this it is important to take advantage of those marketing conditions and we see it a lot in hardware manufacturers like you mm -hmm. mentioned with microsoft and on vr side we've seen it with, mm -hmm. with pico and quest and they're like mm -hmm. throwing out money and then all of a sudden they're like okay we're not handing out any more mm -hmm. money how do you go about trying to figure out how much runway you're going to need and plan for it that way? Like you said, you know, you raise that one round, you're like, we're good for a year, but you know that game's not going to be done in a year. Mm -hmm. How far out there do you recommend people start planning for a cushion? Um, so to, I have a 10 year budget um, and the granularity of that budget um, like in two to three years ahead, I kind of have a pretty good list of like, this is how much we'll pay for software. This is the budget for outsourcing. This is, you know, roughly the team size that we need, roughly what the roles will be. And the, the actual details change a lot under it. Uh, but having that structure and overall, like I said, it, the overall budget for the game has been like since we've decided to make it bigger has mostly stabilized, but the details of it have, have kind of changed. And like I said, I roughly always have like a 10 year projection of how we want to grow as a company. So I would say that you just, you can ballpark it. Um, you can do like a year out, like with that level of granularity of like, I need 10 Adobe licenses. That's going to be this. I need, you know, 10 people, roughly this, uh, I'll probably need outsourcing for, um, and like I didn't, I estimated, I gut estimated, I did some like, like the most we'll spend on art will be this, and I've corrected it 
as, as we sign on vendors and get a better, better understanding and using that to project in the future. So yeah, get some kind of a production person, try to at least, um, if you can't get to the details, at least try to get a sense of, okay, I wanna, let's say a three to $5 million game. It's gonna take three years. There's gonna be some ramped up from year one to year three. This is how that money will roughly distribute by months um, and then start to fill in the details and, and validate if that's correct or not. That is fantastic. And everybody out there, if you have questions about this, ask Katjana, because if she has a 10 year plan, I'm doing good to have a two month plan. She's obviously the expert on all this. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Wishing you the very best continued success with everything at FuzzyBot. Uh, we're going to wrap this one up and kick it over to Dan next. And we've got some IP law information coming to you. Uh, and that'll after that one, that'll wrap up our show. So thank you. As always, everybody else, stick around for just a few minutes and then we'll be back again. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.